Welcome back to the Khalil Osiris podcast. In this episode, Khalil will have a truth and reconciliation conversation with Dr. Jennifer Brown, the executive director of KIPP Jacksonville Schools and a proud U.S. Army veteran who served in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. She is also the recipient of the 2019 Reflecting Freedom House of Mandela Award for her work in education. Dr. Brown, it's really um, an honor to be able to talk with you today. Um, this is a conversation for me that has um, has so much significance in this historic moment. Mm. So I just, knowing the civil unrest and the backdrop of all the things happening uh, in our country, I'm reminded that Nelson Mandela said, uh, in the end, reconciliation is a spiritual process which requires more than just a, a legal framework. Mm -hmm. It has to happen in, in, in the hearts and minds of people. Mm -hmm. When I think about that um, and I look at your life and I look at the work that you're doing in education, I'd just like to start by asking you, given your positioning at this historic, historic moment in a, an amazing school like KIPP, what do you think are the lessons from the life and legacy mm. of Nelson Mandela that are instructive in this historic moment? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had not heard that quote from him before and I read it over and over and over again and thought, oh my gosh, yes. We can't legislate reconciliation, right? Um, and reconciliation requires us to be proximate to one another. It requires us to be up close and personal. Up close and personal, increases the opportunities that we're going to offend one another. We're gonna bump into each other, run over one another, trip. Um, it's messy, right? The work of reconciling is messy. There's so many components to it. It involves an acknowledgement that something wrong has occurred, right? For, for which we need to, to be reconciled to one another. Um, and you're right, we are, we are at this pivotal moment in human history. Um, and I think we're, we're just getting started in this moment. I, I don't think that this, any of this is going to die down. The protests might, um, but I think that this is long work that's gonna continue to happen. And um, I'm, I've been thinking a lot, looking, internally, doing lots of introspection, leading my organization, the schools, the school leaders, teachers, to be introspective as well. Um, if this is, if, if what Nelson Mandela says is true and this is a spiritual endeavor, it, we must turn inward first, right? We gotta turn inward. And um, I'm thinking right now, Khalil, about where I fit in all of this? What's my part? What's been 
what's been my part in perpetuating? Wow. <laughs> what's been my part in perpetuating it, even, even as a black woman? What's been my part in perpetuating it? Um, what do I do? What's my responsibility to dismantle? So I'm thinking a lot about that and pushing us as an institution of schools where, oh, by the way, if, if we are going to have a conversation about um, what is happening right now, we're, we're going to have a conversation about racism. It exists in schools. The school, schooling is an institution in this country. It exists in schools. Um, so I'm pushing us, I'm pushing myself to really examine um, ourselves, examine our decision-making, um, our motivation, our mindsets, because um, because I can only I can only influence what's in my area of responsibility, right? To use a military term, I, I only got influence over that part. Um, I'm not a politician. I'm an educator, so that's my that that's where I'm going to fight this battle. I'm going to do it in in schools. And for me, the road to reconciliation starts with listening. We're not doing enough of that with each other, but it starts with listening. Um, that means I'm gonna probably have to hear some things that make me get defensive. <laughs> what, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean I am doing that? It's, it's gonna, I have to, to stop talking though and listen, right? Um, it's, it means that I am gonna hear some things um, that make me angry, um, sorrowful, and I'm gonna have to listen to folks who might be in different stages of a journey than I am and listen with compassion and listen with a lot of grace and patience. So I, for me, it all starts with the listening the listening and then from the listening maybe we become curious because we we actually stopped talking enough um, to seek to understand one another and if I become curious then I might actually want to learn something and you know we got this quote downstairs on the first floor education is the most powerful weapon with which we can change the world, and 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 it's not just the education that happens in the in the formal you know K through twelve or, or through college. Um, that education can happen anywhere, but I, for me, it really does start with listening. And um, there's a little bit of listening, not a whole lot of listening that's happening right now. So, um, and you know what? Does I go back to the proximity? You got to be up close to people to listen to. Yes. You can't listen from a distance. You can't, right? You got to, we got to be willing to do life and crash into each other um, in order in order for the real listening to take place. You know, it's so amazing. Uh, with you saying that we were talking earlier and you gave the example of how during this COVID-19 lockdown, you and your whole family have all been there and yes. you said everybody had their roles and your littlest one decided 
that I don't know what game this is all of you are playing, but I'm not. Right, yes. And said she wanted to have her way. So, you know, I thought that yes. when you were talking about the messiness yes. of us listening or choosing not to listen, mm. uh, being compassionate or choosing not to be, um, yes. as a family, and I'm talking now as a human family. Yeah, yeah. This courageous listening uh, that you're that's talking okay. about uh, is something that's deeply personal. And I think that's why oftentimes it's so mm. difficult for people to hear what pains them. Mm. Mm. Um, because it becomes personal. That's right. And so we either want to assign blame um, or um, certainly reject guilt yes um, uh, and any kind of accountability for that which we did not personally do certainly right right so when you so when we look at yeah. this broader context of civil unrest and and you're saying the listening that this, this courageous listening I, I we, we both know in the education space children are always listening that's right when we think they're not right. listening, they're listening. Yes. So, and they're listening to things that we don't think we're telling them. That's right. That's right. right. So, they've been hearing, "I can't breathe." Mm. Mm. They've been hearing. Mm. They've been listening mm -hmm. to the words, "I can't mm. breathe." Mm. How have you, as? Mm an educator and a leader in this space mm. had to, how have you addressed that um, with the young people, the young lives, the impressionable mm. souls that you are guiding? Yep. Oof. Um, can I start with the big people first? Yes. And then I, I, we'll talk about the little people so March, early March, we ended up, of course, having to leave the school buildings due to COVID-19 and, and were remote for nine weeks up until the end of the, the school year. And about two weeks before the end of the school year, the murder of George Floyd occurred. And Khalil, I was wrestling with how to lead the adults. This is an unprecedented time in history and not just because of the pandemic. And how do I lead right now? Because it is messy and I'm gonna say some things if I'm being my authentic self, yes. I'm gonna say some things that folks in my organization are going to be uncomfortable with. So how do I lead in this moment? How do I lead? Um, love is my first, is my default. Lead with love is my default. Um, and loving does not preclude truth telling. So I, I banked on, these folks have known me for five years now. I've been here for five years. And if they really know me, then they know my heart for children. They know my heart for this work. 
Um, so I shouldn't have to do a lot of explaining because I've been leading in this way for five years. And I had to say, mattering is the minimum for black folks. Mattering is the minimum. That's table stakes, that, that black people matter, the lives of black people matter. I need everyone who works here to be committed to black people winning and being successful. So not just the, the children that we are educating, um, and, and yes, we wanna see that in you know, test scores and in their academic performance, Bring that same fervor to how you feel about the communities that they go home to. Their fam Do you want their families to win? Because that's gonna be requisite of your employment here. You gotta want black people to win and be successful. Mattering is a low threshold. That's a low bar. So I had to say that. I had to say that and just kind of let that hang out there. Um, and I needed to say that because we, I said, I'm doubling down on my commitment to racial equity, ra racial justice and equity. I'm doubling down. And here's what that's going to look like in action. Like, I know those are words that can live up at 30,000 feet, but on the ground, here's what that's gonna look like for us at Kip Jacksonville Schools. We're gonna go back and look at all of our talent practices and policies and make sure they're equitable. We're gonna, we're gonna examine every facet of ourselves, how we choose to spend our money, where, with whom, the curricula that we select for children do they see themselves in the curricula? Um, the disciplinary policies that we create, are they harmful? Like, are we perpetuating anti-Black policies? We're not gonna do that. We can't say that we love our students and love their communities um, and then bring them into an environment where we are actually causing the trauma. We can't do that. So my leadership in this moment is loving us, loving the children and their communities enough to turn the microscope on ourselves and say, We're, we gotta sit under this microscopic gaze and analyze every decision that we make. And we can't do that collectively if one, we don't have a shared understanding of what racism actually is if we don't understand that that's a, that's it's systemic there are there are prejudiced you know actions that we can take but we we're, we're going to talk about a system that has been established where it favors one group of people over another group of people and policies that have been advanced um, and and like this is not made up people <laughs> like we gotta all agree that this is not made up. I'm not making this up in my mind. There, there's historical artifact that, that points to this, that substantiates this. So we have to get a shared understanding of this so that we know what we are actively trying to dismantle. That's how I'm leading the grown people. Um, 
we had, I think, one of the most powerful team meetings we've ever had in, in five years that I've been here. Um, and it was differentiated. So I said to the black folks on the team, this is your question to answer. How are you prioritizing your peace and your healing? That's your, that's your question. White teammates, here's your question. How are you addressing racism with your white friends, family members, with, with, with white community? How are you addressing that? And it was such a powerful conversation that we ended up having. Uh, having. I think years of trust building helped facilitate the ease of that, that conversation. But at the end of the call, um, one of our black men on staff, it, you know, like he is the epitome of tough guy. You know, he's on our operations team, so very logistical, starts talking and talks about rage, the Baldwin quote, to, to be a Negro and relatively conscious in America is to, to be almost always in a state of rage. So he talks about this, how he is just, in, he's just angry right now. And then he breaks down in tears on a call with, there are 30 of us on this call, he breaks down into tears because he's talking about his son, Max. He and his wife have an 18-month-old baby. And he breaks down into tears and he says, I am so fearful that somebody will look at him, make a judgment about Max. There's nothing I can do to protect him. And I'm like, I don't even get to enjoy being a father because I'm already worried that somebody will take his life. And he, I was messed up. I was messed up. I have heard my husband say this all the time. We have a, we have a stepson who's grown and I've heard my husband replay over and over encounters with the police, his worries for his own son. Um, and in, the, in a moment, I thought to myself, this might not have been the right conversation for us to have. I don't, I don't want this black man to be out here now, his pain vulnerable and visible for everybody. Um, and then I thought, I wonder how many of our white teammates have ever seen a black man that they know intimately, up close and personal, weep. Weep out of fear that he can't protect his son. That he doesn't even get to enjoy fatherhood. That's what I mean, Khalil, when I say listening. It's gotta start with the listening. It's raw, it is painful. They needed that. My white teammates needed that. Some of the black men needed that because they don't even have the words to articulate their fear their rage, how powerless they feel. And it was, it was good. He's, this is a college educated, this is a college educated black man, professional black man who is weeping about his inability to protect his 18 month old son. 
that's the work. That's the work. That's it's hard work. It's painful work. I'm not even qualified to take us through those conversations, but they have to happen. They have to happen. That's that's how we get to reconciliation. Wow, that's uh, for me. That's so deeply personal. touches every aspect of my professional life. Yes. Nothing that I do is outside of me. So, the idea that we um, must courageously listen Mm. and in listening allow oneself to hear others humanity beyond what perceptions we have of them courageous listening allows their humanity to be heard that's right and so in thinking about one of the statements you said, which was, which for me just kind of really struck a chord is your ability, your willingness to be self-reflective and ask how you as a black woman could be complicitous mm. in Oof. the very kind of evil and inhumanity that we call racism, systemic racism. Could you just tease that out a bit for me so so that we have some clarity? So I've committed to journeying through this as well. you and, you and I know this, yeah. just because we exist in this skin doesn't make us experts. <laughs> um, so I, I have to have a, a willingness to listen and be educated as well. And um, the more I read, uh, the more I realize how deeply ingrained the system is in me. Um, the way I would define success, what it means to be successful, Um, the ways in which, if I think back growing up, um, what were the right schools to go to? Because it would lead to fill in the blank, right? Which goes back to success. how to be, how we are supposed to be, and then how I have projected that onto expectations for children um, instead of just like just let them be, just let them be their authentic selves, right? So 
I have had to examine the own my own desire to be proximate to whiteness and how I've equated that with excellence. Um, because that's been, it's been, it's kind of been drilled into us, right? So our, our four parents didn't have access to some opportunities. So naturally when, when they have children and then they, those children have children, they're going to say, we want you to go to the best colleges. And the best colleges for them may not have been the HBCUs because they could always get into those. Um, but nobody in my family was happier than when I graduated with a doctorate from Vanderbilt University. <laughs> Everybody showed up for graduation. <laughs> my, I remember my classmates were like, how many family members do you have? I'm like, all of them. They all showed up for this graduation. <laughs> Great Aunt Naomi was there for the graduation. Like, everybody showed up. Because it was a big deal. It was a big deal to graduate from Vanderbilt. Um, and, and so it's things like that, right? Like, how we define excellence ha has been so closely related to the white world, white institutions, um, how the speed at which you can climb the ladder professionally, how much money you can make, where you can live. Um, I live in a country club, Khalil. I would never have imagined that growing up. I don't know anybody growing up who lived in a country club, a gated community. <laughs> I totally understand. Right? I'm like, we, I, we live in a country club. My kids will now just think that that's normal, like <laughs> just live in a country club. Um, so I, I have had to be willing to say, Jim, let's unpack this. Why does that feel like success? Um, why, whose voices ring loudest and validate your decision making? I've had to push myself to think about that um, and wrestle with it and own it and then say, so how do I stop doing that? How do I stop doing that? Uh, in schools, as I think about these schools, we got kindergartners through eighth graders. It's pushing me to think about how we expose all of our teachers to black excellence. Like, do people really have a blueprint, like a precedent for black excellence? I would venture to say that most of our teachers don't. Most of our teachers have not been in an environment that is predominantly black and beautiful and authentic and firing on all cylinders. They unless they've been to HBCUs and sat in a classroom, right, where um, the professor is, is, you know, top of their field, they, they just don't. They've, and yet there were so many examples of it for me from little bitty, from the nursery that I went to. It was the, it was the nursery that everybody who was anybody black was yes. trying to get their kids into because they knew that their children would leave knowing how to read. Yes. They know Bible verses, yes. <laughs> right? So we had that early on. 
Um, so th- th- this is what I'm trying to do here is we got to define black excellence and show people people examples of it um, so that they know what, th- what we're aiming for, right? See, like we don't have to leave the community to find excellence. It's here, it's here. That's, that's one way um, that it's really playing out. But, but also in like what we put in front of kids, it's really important. I think about the libraries. I think about the books at home that my daughters have that just didn't exist for me when I was the same age as them. So Bellamy, the, this is the three-year-old that wreaks havoc on everybody. Uh, Bellamy loves this book that my mom sent to her called Don't Touch My Hair. <laughs> she loves this book. And she loves looking at the character in this book. And it's this really cute journey about how everybody loves her hair because it, it's so versatile and people want to touch it. And she's like, don't touch my hair. And when we get to that part, Bellamy shouts it, don't touch my hair. So she loved because the, the little girl in the book looks like her. She has so many books where the little girl in the book looks like her. And I didn't have that. So I think about that and I push our team to think about that when we are putting things in front of our kids. Everything doesn't have to, but it's important that they see themselves reflected everywhere on this campus. When they're walking down the halls, I want them to see pictures of themselves joyful. I don't know if you all, you know, got to, like it is happy joy. I want them to see joyful pictures of themselves. I want them to see themselves and their their lived experiences reflected in the literature that they read, in the history that they learn. I think we can do a better job of the local history. We're that's a that's an area of improvement for us. There's so much beautiful local history um, that our children should be learning in a formal setting about uh, Jacksonville. There's so many key moments and contributions to civil rights yes. that happened here and we're you know we're not doing as good a job as we will we will be doing a better job of at it in the coming school year and beyond but that's so important um, and I, I I think my last point will be who is in front of them the who that's in front of them is important um, we issued a statement because everybody was issuing, issuing a statement. And I had a couple of teammates say to me, you know you didn't have to issue a statement, right? Like, we know you. And more than the statement, we there's evidence of your leadership all around, right? So I said, yes, thank you. And we're going to still issue a statement because I want it on record how we feel. Um, and our commitment to to racial justice and equity. And everybody was releasing a statement, right? But then when you go look at the leadership teams of some of these organizations that are releasing statements, what's the action beyond the words? I appreciate the words, because now we have something that we can hold you accountable to. We can archive this thing (laughs) and come back in two years and say, remember you had this commitment? What are you doing differently? Um, my senior most leadership team, there are four of us. So I, I am, of course, am the executive director. I'm at the top, and then I've got three chiefs who report to me. 
black woman, black woman, white man. So when folks look at the senior most decision makers in this organization, it reflects the children. Yes. Um, when I got here in 2015, we had portraits of Teachers of the Year on the wall. They were all white women. And I said it in my interview, in a school that's 97% black, the Teachers of the Year have all been white women and the children walk past this wall of fame and that's what they see. Does anybody find anything problematic about that? Because it's problematic for me. You mean to tell me there is not a single black teacher that was teacher of the year, right? Like we talk in education about mirrors and windows. Children need to, mirrors, they need to be able to see themselves reflected in their schools. And so uh, if you walk around now, that's different. But it wouldn't have been different if somebody hadn't said something that like, this is a problem. And no, I don't want you to just go pick anybody, you know, any black person to be teacher of the year, but you got, surely there are qualified people who should be teachers of the year here. Um, that's how I've been leading Khalil since I got here in 2015, asking questions, having conversations, making us look at some things, um, look, at, look at some really tough things that are tough to look at. And I'm gonna continue to do that. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to push us, and it's a loving push, but it's a push nonetheless. And I'm learning how to not move at the speed of my comfort. I'm learning how to not move at the speed of my comfort because I'm non-confrontational, and I'm like, oh, if I say this thing not going to land well. And, but there's work. I, I say to myself all the time, I say this to the team, I will land. I got enough degrees now that I will land. So I'm here to do a job. I'm not here to keep a job. <laughs> I'm here to do a job. Uh, there is work. The children don't land. They don't land. So every time I'm thinking, I get lulled into moving at the speed of my comfort I'm like but the kids the kids that's why Jen this is not about your comfort the children they don't have the words you got the words and you actually have the influence to make change so let's go girl let's go do something we got to go do something different so yeah I um I, I found a, a I came across a quote by Mandela that I thought was like, this is from his book, um, Conversations with Myself. He said, we were expected to destroy one another and ourselves collected to collectively in the worst racial conflagration. Instead, we as a people chose the path of negotiation, compromise and peaceful settlement. Instead of hatred and revenge, we chose reconciliation and nation building. That's us. This is where we are right now. This is a, uh, it feels like a reckoning. And I think that some folks think that we're gonna destroy ourselves in this moment. Like it feels almost insurmountable. How do we get to the other side of this? It's, we're gonna have to make a choice. 
we're either going to hate ourselves and destroy ourselves or we are going to have to pursue reconciliation. Dr. Brown, this has been an amazing conversation. One that has touched me deeply and um, I feel has helped me to grow spiritually. Thank you so much Likewise. for sharing your life and your story and the, um, just the incredible work that you're doing. You're so moved. Thank you. Thank you. When I think about truth and reconciliation, uh, one of the things that comes to mind uh, for me is that forgiveness takes one person, reconciliation two. The idea of truth and reconciliation is that regardless of the fact that many of us come to this conversation with irreconcilable experiences, truth and reconciliation conversations invites us to be courageous listeners. It invites us to be compassionately empathetic. And by so doing, hearing the stories of others, hearing their experiences with racism, then what we're able to do with truth and reconciliation conversations is begin a process of healing that moves us beyond the woundedness and allows us to hear in each other's voice our shared humanity. When people see this documentary, I want them to come away with a sense of hope. I also want them to feel deeply challenged. Challenged by the sense of responsibility to do more, to give more, to be part of the solution rather than silent on the sideline. I want people to come away with a sense of their own efficacy. This documentary isn't about empowering anyone. In fact, it's a reminder to people that they already have power. And the fundamental question is, how are they using the power that they have?